Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. I acknowledge that we broadcast from stolen, unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to Elders past and present and to the Elders of the lands of which this show reaches. It always was and it always will be Aboriginal land. Coming up on today's show, I'll be joined by Nai Tahu author and journalist Becky Manawatu to speak about her debut novel called Away, which centres on the lives of orphaned brothers. Uh, they kind of The book deals with themes of domestic violence, gang culture, masculinity and fractured families. It is a bit of a heavy one, so just a bit of forewarning for that. Uh, it's an award-winning uh, debut book from Becky and I'm very much looking forward to speaking with her this afternoon. Later on, I'll be sharing a story from All the Best, weekly audio storytelling show that's created by a bunch of community radio stations across Australia. I hope you can stay with me. You are listening to Triple R. Uwe is a work of social realist fiction centering on the lives of orphaned brothers, eight-year-old Arama and teenager Tulkiri. The story deals with themes of domestic violence, masculinity and fractured families and offers a really remarkable insight into the minds of children and young men. It's been awarded many prizes and is Becky Manawatu's debut novel. Joining me to speak about it today, I do have Naitau author and journalist Becky Manawatu. Becky, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Kia ora, kia ora, Bethany. Very nice to be here. Becky. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> Virtually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Becky, I know that you've worked as a journalist. This is your debut novel. I'd love to know a little bit about that transition and, you know, have you always wanted to be a novelist? Um, yeah, so I, I, I wanted to be a novelist first, actually, and um, I had written a whole first rough draft of Owe before I even got um, my job as a journalist for a local paper in, uh, in the small town where I come from. So it was more um, it was more about the job that happened to be listed at the time that I moved back home and it connected to my love of writing. Mm-hmm. So it was the other way around. I, I think, um, yeah, that was how it went. <laughs> so fiction as the first love, journalism as the, as the, as the day job, perhaps. Um, can I ask, I suppose, you know, having worked in, in nonfiction and also, and also now fiction, what do you feel like, um, you know, a fictional, uh, piece of work is able to provide you that perhaps, you know, working in journalism isn't? Um, it, it gives an opportunity to tell a, uh, more nuanced truth and I, I think often um, with non-fiction we are um, bound by 
bound by the facts and fiction gives us a chance to go beyond the the facts as um, as not not too much as they as they stand and they I mean fiction is best if it's um, if it's pinned underpinned by some some good facts <laughs> but um, I yeah I think it just gives us a chance to go a little deeper into things that we can't um, we can't explore as easily within non-fiction mm. yeah. and Becky with Away you've created a it, it's quite a masterpiece you know it is very um, it's it's tough at times it can be quite confronting but it's so um, rich and so it's so complex and I'm, I'm very excited to, to speak with you about it. You know, maybe let's start with away. Um, you know, as a verb, it means to howl, groan, wail, um, or as an expression, it means, uh, sorry, or, or it also means an expression of astonishment or distress. I'm interested in that framing for the book. Is that perhaps what it took for you to, to write this book? Yeah, um, I think, yeah, it means all of those things and then it, can also be used in humour as well. I mean, you could typically, someone could say something funny and you would respond with, oh, it's just, um, it's it's such a, yeah, it, it is the things I went through, including the humour of, um, of what you, the, the, what you need to get through grief or pain, um, mm. how you can't stay in, in darkness too long and you need to move towards light I guess um the title came a little bit later um in fact probably in the final six months when we finally worked out kind of what we wanted to call it after numerous attempts <laughs> um but yeah it's definitely I'm very happy with with what we chose in the end mm. for its title mm. And you can definitely feel that light and shade come through in the story. You know, I've, I've read that you wrote this book when you were, uh, I believe, living in, in Germany with your family. I'm interested when place is so central to this story. What was that experience of, of writing when you were kind of writing from afar? Hmm. I think it was, um, it was homesickness that I was, I was very homesick. Um, when I started writing over in Germany and um, I think that and we were landlocked we were living in Frankfurt and my my dad's a fisherman the sea's always been quite important to my family um, and I missed it I missed the sea so much and I missed home and I missed the people and the homesickness definitely kind of made New Zealand become so rich in my imagination and so writing even though it was painful at times was quite um it was nice because it drew me back home mm. yeah and yeah I think this book is just one of the books that will kind of stay with me for for quite some time the characters are so uh, rich and, and complex I'd love to speak about um, the two brothers and kind of, you know, it's their story of unraveling their history and, and, you know, the trauma that has has shaped a lot of their lives. Can you tell me, I suppose, in your own words um, about these two brothers? Um, yeah, they, 
they pined for each other. Um, although Tokiri less, um, he was less aware of that pining for whatever he was exactly pining for. He was pining for family, but um, he was trying to shut that away from him. He was trying to pretend it was something else that he wanted. Um, and meanwhile, Arama is very openly pining for his brother. He misses his brother. He wants his brother to come back. Um, and that relationship, um, I guess, was also created by the homesickness I was feeling, but um, I put it into these two, two young, well, young, a boy and a young man. Um, and... Yeah, their their distance is is I had I'd hoped to create something that made the reader um, wish for them to draw close together very soon. Like they were they were just I wanted the reader to to need them to come back together. Um, um, and having the split stories also meant that it, it was possible to to. Um, create this kind of fractured story that I also hoped to to pull together in a way by the end. <laughs> I Whether I did that or not, you will have to see. <laughs> I mean, as a reader, I definitely feel that um, that that is something that I felt. You know, I think that what feels really central to this uh, to this story is, you know, the inherited trauma that has kind of clearly being caused by colonisation, the ongoing process of colonisation. You know, it, it shows up in um, patriarchal violence, domestic violence, and how that impacts families and continues to destroy people. And it really shows how these systems of oppression weigh down on the oppressed body. Mm. I'm interested, when you're writing this book, who who are you writing for? Who do you have in mind that you're writing to? Um. I have to say, when I first wrote it, um, having my husband read it and, and feel engaged by the story and for it to say something that he wanted to hear was important to me, um, which is why there's a lot of move, plot movement as well and there's a lot going on. It's kind of readable to men as well as women I thought um and Māori men um is Māori men and women were important to me as readers that that's that they would we would read that and see something that was important being told mm. um not just violence for violence sake but um that there would be something in it for our people yeah there's also so much in it that is about I suppose healing and, and recovery and kind of ask what healing can look like you know it looks at um, language preservation revival for you what does I suppose language revival or having access to language mean both both to you and and to the characters hmm. it's um I've I can't speak to the Māori, um, nor can my husband, and my kids are learning it. In fact, tonight I have classes. I go to 
class on Wednesday nights. And I've come to a place where um, using our language is something that I, I've come to accept that it might never be that I get to a place where I can use it fluently. But the connections I gain from being at my class, from going to weekends and staying on the marae and having a wānanga and being able to hear the reo and be around other people who find it important is, is, is what makes it worth it now for me. I don't have a goal of you need to be able to speak this language so well by this such and such date. For me, it's about the connection I've made with other people using our beautiful language mm -hmm. and often not using it well. We have some teachers in the room who, who do, but that that is, yeah, and my, my children, that they are using it more than I ever did at their age. It means so much. Mm -hmm. It's so important, yeah. If you have just joined us, uh, we are joined by Becky Manawatu speaking all about her debut novel, Uwe. Becky, there's so much in this book that I, I can only imagine would feel quite um, heavy to hold as a writer when you're, when you're putting this story um, pen to paper. I'm interested, I suppose, how do you keep yourself safe or how do you care for yourself as a, as a writer when you are kind of writing about um, some quite tough things? Um, within the work itself, um, there's moot, like I said, mentioned before about the movement of dark to light and there being some relief from that. So within the writing process itself, it's there. And then having my, yeah, outside of the work, I have supportive whānau, friends and family and um, people to to talk to apart from not just writers but um, but people that are interested in in what I was trying to do within the story and then I've recently started to use karakia like before and after work which is prayer yeah so um, but mostly I think within the work just moving just knowing that you've gone to a dark place for a certain period of time and just listening to your intuition that you need to move away from that. And how much of that comes through the kind of the first draft and how much of that is in the the editing process or the you know having perhaps time away from the manuscript and then kind of going through it again? Oh heaps like I, I really um, found the editing process to be just as creative just as creative time. Like I, I was fully engaged with that whole process and, and I was excited about any nudges of, from my editor towards changes. I just needed to be told, hey, maybe this is, you could do, you could work this a little bit better. Yeah, and as soon as I was sort of nudged, I would just get a whole new lease of life I would just get so excited I just sometimes did need a little bit of direction and that was that was cool yeah mm. I enjoyed that <laughs> but first draft oh my god it was a terrible mess <laughs> uh, I think I'm that's so a common experience <laughs> um 
Becky, you know, I'm interested. This is your 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 debut um, novel. When, when you've spent so long with these characters and you kind of have to almost relinquish control when you publish it and you put it out to, to it and you kind of, you don't have, um, yeah, control over these characters or their story anymore. What what was it like to kind of, to put it out and to gift these characters to the world? Um, I was immediately, once I was no longer even allowed to touch the manuscript <laughs> um, and it was becoming really a book, I was, I was really missing the characters. I was quite sad and a little bit lost without them. Um, and then I, that changed to excitement for readers to discover them. And then that changed to I want to be alone with them and I want to take all the books that have been printed and keep them in my house and no one ever is ever allowed to be with these characters. It was really weird. <laughs> and um, But now I'm working on a new novel, which is which is sort of a sequel. Um, so I'm I'm back there with with a couple of them at least. So but it has been, it's been a roller coaster, that's such a cliche, but definitely that's the truth. <laughs> yeah. I can only imagine that, yeah. you know, this book has had so much success. You've won, you know, a bunch of different awards for it. What does it, I suppose, feel like to have your first book out there um, and being so well-received and being so well-read? It's a, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just so lucky. I'm so happy that it, all the opportunities um, Oria has created for my family and myself, all the new people that is, it has brought into my life that I now know as friends and get to talk to and um yeah it's just been I have to really remind myself to be excited and grateful about it sometimes because it, it just yeah I um yeah I'm just I'm just really happy that this now now gives me kind of permission to work more on writing in a way yeah, even though I could have granted myself that permission, but it's just sort of extra, like, you really can keep going. <laughs> I love that, and you're doing it, and you've got a second book in the works, which is so exciting. Um, Becky, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> that was Becky Manawatu there, speaking all about her debut novel, Uwe. It is out now through Scribe Publications. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. So you are listening to Triple R. My name's Beth and you're on The Glass House. This next story comes from all the best. It's a show where emerging Australian storytellers learn how to make audio stories. It's a weekly podcast and a radio show. It's produced at FBI in association with SIN, Triple R, and a bunch more. This next story comes from one of their latest episodes called Set the Table. Uh, Karen, a self-proclaimed cooking enthusiast, realises she doesn't know how to make food from her home country of Hong Kong, so she enlists her dubious dad to teach her some of his favourite recipes. Hey, you um, 
My name is Karen, or in Cantonese, Zhang Zhang. I'm 22 years old, and this is Releasing Steam. So, how do you think this is going to go? Uh, Growing up, I couldn't exactly call my lunchbox a box because, well, it wasn't. Not even remotely square, but round and accompanied by a spoon because my mom was adamant on sending me to school every day with a meal that was hot and filling and more often than not, that meant my thermos was filled with either fried rice or braised vermicelli noodles. I distinctly remember asking my mum to give me more ham and lettuce sandwiches, because, well, there was something thrilling at the time about having perfectly cut triangles for lunch. I tried to enjoy it, I really did, but I'd be lying to myself if I said I preferred mildly soggy white bread with cold chicken compared to the flavour bomb that was Jimmy's satay sauce. That's not to say that I didn't like Western food at all. I loved Villetto fish burgers and barbecued ribs. And with Australia's multicultural foodscape, I really can't complain. It is, however, rather ironic that this has worked to my detriment, because today I'm a so-called foodie, a hobby chef, a home cook enthusiast, if you will. Carbonara the traditional way, pizza from scratch, I've got them all covered. The catch? If you throw a Cantonese recipe my way, you'd better hope you have a backup meal in the freezer. It occurred to me rather recently that while I've grown up my entire life eating it, I don't actually know how to cook food from my own culture. Sure, I have a deep appreciation for it, and goodness knows it runs in my family. So maybe it's ignorance stopping me, or maybe it's something else. To answer that, we have to take a little step backwards in time. And there's one person I need to help me out along the way. All right, can you introduce yourself to everybody? Who are you? What is your relation to me? My name is Chong Sing Chen. And I am Kevin Stair. Like most first-generation children and their parents, my dad and I have a rather complicated relationship. Yeah, I told you. No, I still have a lot. I could have talked to my mom instead. It's not like she doesn't have a lot to say. But my mom cooks out of necessity, my dad out of passion. 
Would you say that cooking is one of your biggest hobbies? 可以咁讲啦，即系嚟咗澳洲好多嘢，一啲你以前中意食嘅，就喺澳洲未必可以有啦。咁嚟咗澳洲又生活就冇以前喺香港咁忙啦，就多啲时间啦。All my bags are packed. I'm ready to go. I'm standing here outside your door. My parents migrated to Australia 20 years ago, with perhaps slightly different intentions to what you'd first think. They'd both climbed the corporate ladder in their respective jobs, but paid the price by having nannies taking care of both my brother and I. They wanted a more relaxed life. A life with less pressure for both them and my brother and I growing up. Of course, the hardest part was leaving their parents and extended family behind. But the changing political situation was really the nail in the coffin as a sign to go. Here they gained time, and in a way, freedom. And what did my dad do with that? What he loved best: cooking and eating. It's important to note that from the very beginning, I was already aware of my conflicting cultural identities. Ah, you don't like Hong Kong, actually. Okay. Ah, not like. Eh? Why? Because Hong Kong is okay. Yep, that was four-year-old me caught on tape saying pretty plain and clear, "I don't like Hong Kong." My reasoning back then was well. Understandable for a four-year-old. There's nothing to play with there, and I guess in a way that still rings true. As I grew older, going back became less of an escapist adventure, and more like a duty. But every time, there's always one thing that would never fail to brighten up my trip. Do you remember what my favorite food to eat back in Hong Kong was? Me, uh. 最中意食雞蛋仔啦，我如果我記得就雞蛋仔，我最中意食。Clearly, he's spot on。因為雞蛋仔你要佢好食咧，除咗嗰個蛋漿，佢仲要咧嗰個雞蛋嗰、那個、那個蛋冇咧要夠大。雞蛋仔啊 ，basically the Cantonese equivalent of waffles。My dad describes the best ones with the phrase。我哋叫外脆內軟咧。Which basically translates to crispy on the outside and soft on the inside. 咁你食落去咧就有唔同嘅系口感嘅 texture 咧，咁嘅时候咧就觉得佢特别好食啦。Okay, well, what do you think of my cooking? 你个 cooking 都几好啊！你特别你去过诶意大利咁样又。So he says it's pretty good because I went to Italy and got to taste what their authentic pasta was like. 啊，用嘅材料其实。又唔需要好豐富，都整得幾好食啊 ！So you appreciate？ 哦，當然啦。<笑>如果係係你整嘅，我啊即係特別覺得好食啦。Wow, thank you. So he compliments me。不過你整嗰啲甜品咧，我就覺得你用好太多，落得太多糖啦，就唔係好好啱我食。But then gives a subtle dig that I add too much sugar to my desserts. Well then. Would you say that Cantonese or Asian desserts are typically much less sweet? Chinese food 嘅甜品咧都应该系冇咁甜嘅
，但係中人嘅甜品就同係西人嘅有啲唔同啦。啊 ，What was like some of the desserts that you liked eating back in Hong Kong? Because I know when we go back, it's one of our favorite things to go and eat Hong Kong street desserts. 如果你講甜品係西式嗰啲咧，西人嘅咧就即係最普遍嘅就係食蛋撻啦，啊。What are we making today? Today we are going to make egg tart. Okay, but what is it in Cantonese? Egg tart in Cantonese is 蛋撻。Better to have a, the edge a little bit up outside the mold. Because it's gonna shrink. Then, yeah, and then you can hold more custard. How does this look? Yeah, good. <laughs> Is it too thin? Is... No, no. Put the, the the bottom. Don't make it too too thick. Remember. Oh yeah, like last time. Where do you think makes the best dan tart out of all the bakeries that you've tried? Ah,、uh, in Australia you can't find a good one. Really? And, uh, no. Sometimes you, you, you can have the the um the puff pastry, and ah、uh, yeah, egg tart. You can find good one in um yum cha yum cha place, the Chinese restaurant. And、um, yeah, for normal bakery, and、uh, it is pretty hard to find a good one. And but in Hong Kong, the good good one everywhere because they're fresh. What about like the Dai Ban Dan Tap? Dai Ban is is uh average. <laughs> Then what makes what makes a good Dan Tap? Fresh. Fresh. And the custard is warm and and、um, silky smooth. Yeah, if we had a guy dancer mold, then I would have made us make guy dancer instead. Guy dancer. But unfortunately, we do not. Next time when we go back to Hong Kong, we buy one back. Well, when are we going to go back, though? Are you reshaping mine? 唔係，呢個係新嚟。正話嗰個你第一個我就 reshape 咗，好啲。That was my favorite thing to eat in Hong Kong. What was your favorite food to eat growing up? 因為細個就就冇錢啦，啊咁咧就唔能夠可以食到一啲係誒多啲選擇嘅食物，咁啊一日可能得係 ten cents Australian dollar 喎，五十年前咁樣。You can hear me gasping because my dad is telling me about how he only had the equivalent of ten Australian cents to buy lunch. 我又中意食呢個係牛腩啊，即係 beef 嘅係
biscuit. He loved beef brisket, but didn't have enough money to get the meat or even the sauce toppings. So he just ordered plain noodles and asked the owner very nicely to give him some sauce for free. And because the brisket was cooked in the same pot, maybe, just maybe, he'd also catch some slivers of meat in there. And it's these little things that made him very happy. Where was this store located? In what area? He tells me that the restaurant was located right where he grew up, a place called Dai Wohao, and that the buildings were now long demolished. It's not like I haven't heard stories like this before. But every time I do hear them, it never fails to strike me just how different things were the way me and my brother grew up in comparison. Not only the fact that we never had to know what it was like to have to worry about having enough food to put on the table, but the opportunities that we had instead. Overseas travel, spontaneous road trips, listening to none other than Dad's favorite, Nora. Swimming lessons and learning to play the piano, even if I was stubborn and hated it back then. It's a contrast that we often sweep under the table, because here... Well, we don't talk about our feelings. Now would have been the opportune moment to tell him just how grateful I am. But I don't, because, well, for being honest, I cowered out and felt too awkward. But I know he's going to listen to this. So, Dad, I just wanted to say thank you. All the best story there. That was called Releasing Steam by Karen Cheng with supervising production by Lee Redfern. You can check out All the Best wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you do want to get involved with the show, they are currently accepting autumn pitches. You can head over to allthebestradio.com to find out more. Hey, it's nearly time for me to get on out of here. But before I do, I have something that I want to share with you. Uh, It is with a heavy heart and a bittersweet feeling that I wanted to let you know that I am finishing up The Glass House. It has been an immense privilege and joy to spend time with you each and every week. And I feel indebted to all the guests that I've had the honour of interviewing. I've I've honestly learnt so much about the craft of storytelling um, and about radio making You know, Triple R is my favourite station in the whole wide world um, and I look forward to continuing as a dedicated listener. Plus, I'm sure you'll hear me around the airwaves uh, from time to time. I did start here at Triple R eight years ago uh, and started this show four years ago and it's honestly been so wonderful to see the station grow and evolve over that time. 
there's never felt like a more exciting time to be a part of this station. So for now, it's time for someone new to jump into this slot. Um, and I'm very excited to listen to who that is. Uh, if you'll indulge me, I do want to say a huge heartfelt thank you to our Talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy, who's been instrumental in making this program happen each and every week. Um, and to the Triple R program manager, Beck Hornsby, who's just one of the very best. Um, felt so supported by all of the Triple R crew um, over the whole time I've been here and especially over what has been an incredibly challenging last couple of years. Um, yeah, just the strength and resilience that's been shown here has never failed to impress me and to, to warm my heart. Next week uh, is going to be my final show alongside Mel Cranenberg, who I started with um, on The Grid four years ago. So I do hope you can join me for my last edition of The Glass House and Mel's last edition of Backstory next Wednesday. It'll kick off from 12. Um, I'm sure that it's going to be something special. And just in case you're worried, I'm still a mega hurt for life. So hopefully I'll see you at the Community Cup sometime. But as always, keep it locked to Triple R. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website, 